You are tuned in to the OT Dude Podcast, a podcast that explores how to live a richer, fuller, more meaningful life through occupational therapy. My name is Jeff, and I'm a licensed occupational therapist practicing in the United States. My goal for this show is to learn about my guests' stories, their passion, struggles, successes, insights, and everything in between. You can support this podcast by sharing it with your friends on social media, writing a review, and even considering being a guest yourself on the show. If you're interested, visit ot2.com slash podcast to connect with me. Also, if you're a visual person, there's a video version of this podcast on the OT Dupe YouTube channel. Above all, thanks for being here and tuning in. On today's episode, Erica and I had a wonderful discussion about our compassion and passion for OT, being humble, evidence-informed practice, finding our own professional identity despite outside forces in healthcare, avoiding burnout, exposure therapy for teenagers, assistive technology to make our clients shine, and how families can be a useful resource to glue the pieces together for our clients to maximize their participation in meaningful occupations. My guest today is Erica Patusco, and she has been an occupational therapist for over 10 years with pediatrics, adults, and geriatric care background. She recently settled into the role of school occupational therapy in a public high school and for kids with special needs in New York. Erica graduated from Keene University with a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and a Master of Science in OT. At 17 years old, she started working in physical medicine and rehab practice, and that's where she developed a passion for nutrition and fitness, maintaining an active lifestyle, and physical and occupational therapy. Erica specializes not only in pediatric care from birth to late teenage years, but she has a strong foundation in disease management, sports injury, corrective movement, and adult and geriatric wellness care. That's a whole lot because, well, she's got over 10 years of experience and I'd love to learn about her experiences, her insights in the current state of OT and what she's kind of, what she's passionate about, really. So with that, I'm going to patch Erica on right now. So, hey, Erica, how's it going? Good. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing great. I just did some decorating, actually, before I got you on. Like, I was like looking at my video camera. You can't see it's off screen, but I was like. I don't think I want that on camera because I like kind of moved. I'm like my, so I did some decorating. I printed out like my logo just to cover it up for now. And it's like, so I'm doing great. Like my environment is making me comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So first question I'd like to ask everybody, tell me about yourself and how you found OT. I've been in practice uh, for over 10 years. Um, I've really covered um, most populations. Um, I also did recently uh, graduate with my doctorate uh, back in May uh, from Baypack University. So I did add that uh, to my uh, uh, experience. (laughs) So I have a story, um, like most of us do, on how I found OT. Uh, I was actually enrolled in uh, fashion school uh, while I was working for this multidisciplinary practice, uh, fashion marketing and merchandising. Um, I knew that I wanted to work with the public and I really wanted to make people feel good, feel good about themselves. And what better way than, you know, fashion and clothing 
but I wasn't sure if my heart was really in the fashion industry. Hmm. Uh, by nature, I happen to be a, a very passionate um, person and my heart needed to be in to whatever career I was going to do. So my boss at the time, his best friend happened to be an occupational therapist. And he said, you know what, Erica, you love fitness, nutrition. He said, but you're very creative and passionate. I think you need to go hang out with my best friend. <laughs> well, I instantly fell in love with what defined occupational therapy, what it was about, that there was actually a profession out there that you know, really took a holistic whole body approach. Um, and it's, it just resonated so much with me and, you know, my, my goals or, or, or my dreams for what my lifelong career really should be about. Uh, so I enrolled into OT school, um, never forgot my interview, uh, <laughs> when I told <laughs> the professor, um, that, um, I was coming from fashion school and she's like, okay, so give me your definition of OT. And I poured my heart and soul out. That's how connected I felt um, in the time that I observed uh, this occupational therapist and everything that he told me about what it really means to be an OT. Um, and she like couldn't believe that someone's coming from a completely different area and had this description of, you know, what OT was. Yeah, that's... That's really interesting. I think there's a lot of parallels in like the way you described it, like the creativity part and, you know, making people happy. It's functional. We have like functional clothing. I know some fashion is not functional. It's just like aesthetic, <laughs> but it's very creative and it works on the psychology, right? You make people feel good. So it's like OT is like the same thing, but you're working instead of working with, you know, something more, like design or like, yeah, like design, right? Like from what I understand. It's directly the person and what they're like wearing in their shoes. So I'm glad you found OT because, you know, it, the creativity part, I think, is one of the things that drew me to it as well. So with your background, you understand psychology. So do you think you use that in OT? Because OT is so mentally health, like the foundations, our roots in it. In your practice, can you tell me a bit more about that? Um, I think it's correlates 100 percent uh when i took my mental health courses in at king university my professor had said to me erica i promise you everything that you will learn in this semester you will use for the rest of your career and i thought she was crazy yeah i wanted to do sports rehab i wanted to how could that correlate what does you know mental health have anything to do with it what does psychology have anything to do with it and that was the best advice that someone has ever given me. I feel that I wouldn't be so successful as a clinician if I didn't have strong ties to psychology. Mm. I feel that the mind, when we're implementing an intervention, right, our clients, uh, it, it's not physically what they're doing, it's the mind and the mind mm -hmm. has to be in that moment, the mind needs to believe that they can get better, believe that this intervention is going to work. And that's what makes them the most successful. And for us as, as occupational therapists, our success comes from building a rapport with who we work with, having them trust you. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's giving them the confidence. It's reestablishing uh, 
occupations you know, after a disability where they think that life is over. It's really not over. You know, maybe we have to change the way that you do something, but you can still do it. Maybe we have to break that goal or that task down and have you be successful at multiple parts of it, but maybe not the whole thing, but you're still successful. You're still engaging in that occupation. And the first way to do that is to make them psychologically believe that they can. And just because life has changed doesn't mean life ends for them. Yeah, that's that's a good, really well, I can tell you did really well in your interview. For it. <laughs> it's like, oh, I want to work with you. No, that's such a good way to put it. Like, you can't just like go through the motions, you know, like of whatever occupation it is. Well, maybe sleep. But even then, like, you gotta, like, you wanna, you gotta wanna sleep. You can't be like, I'm like, trying to stay up and like you're not getting a rest so your mind's got to be in it like a hundred percent no matter with what you do and yeah. i think that is one of the draws with ot it's like it is so holistic and we see the big picture and how all the occupations play a role like at the end of the day and considered then that's the theme that i'm seeing a lot like a lot of people are not achieving what they want or they're not you know getting the best out of life which is why ot is so cool and and the the, pur the purpose. Yes. You know, as occupational therapists, we have a why. You know, why are we implementing something? Why are we doing something? There's an end goal to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I yeah. think that that emotional, mental connection to yeah. you know, what we're trying to do and what we're trying to achieve. Yeah. As humans, like it's that's kind of a cool thing as we all have some type of human connection like that connects us like at the end of the day you because something as basic as adls like eating you know it's like we can all connect on some level and that is why i think ot is so cool and how we can i think probably why we can as therapists connect ourselves so like easily because we can be like so relatable and we all have some experience of some story to share or something that connects us i wanted to ask about your experience in working with some of the younger age groups, like more specifically, maybe like pediatrics, but not even just pediatrics, but like maybe like newborns. Do you have like any experience with that? Because to me, it's such a, that concept of like what OT would do. Like I understand like it involves like, you know, like the bond between the mom, breastfeeding, things like that. So, but from your experience, like do you have any stories or insights from that? From my own personal perspective, uh, within this age group, it's more of, supporting a parent um again that psychology comes into play uh, here they are presented with you know their infant their child um that is going to live maybe permanently with a disability or be delayed in some way from among their peers and how do you support this mom or parent or a caregiver in facilitating the achievements of some of these milestones. You know, mm. it's hard enough being a parent, being a parent for the first time, but now you're trying to understand a disability that, or a condition that you've maybe never heard of, never been presented with. So there's a lot of dynamic there. And how do we care, teaching the parent to care for themselves is number one. Uh, I do a lot of that providing them with activities to support achieving some of these milestones, whether it be gross motor, whether it be sensory, fine motor. Uh, how do we 
modify the environment for success. Yeah. Um, so I feel like, you know, within this age range, it's more of coaching for me mm-hmm. and more of, you know, positioning, adapting, maybe, you know, seating, where's the child resting and, you know, how are things being conducted within the home? Um, I, I, in my own personal experience, uh, dealing with, you know, when you get closer to the age of one or two, you know, dealing with the emotional regulation and, you know, outbursts and meltdowns and how do we do this, you know, trying to be a, a successful parent. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. thinking about it. I'm a relatively new parent. I'm a relatively two-year-old, right? So I was talking to my wife about it and I was like, hey, you know, we didn't like get a handbook for like how to be parents. And like, you didn't, we didn't go to school for how to be parents. Even if on the best of cases, like in your child is like normal, so to speak, it's like, even then you sometimes don't know what to do. And then you add like the psychological components of like not knowing basically about a condition. And it's like, adds like a whole nother layer to it. It's why it's so important for like practitioners, like OT to do what they do to address like, the holistic picture and really like you said support the parents and like coach them and help them and guide them along the way and based on what they need and remind them that maybe their child is a little bit different and all of us develop at different times uh and, and in different ways and we can't compare to other siblings, we can't compare to our families, we can't compare to our friends, children, you know, each child, each human is really unique and individual. And I try to remind them that stop making comparisons. Um, Because, you know, it's, it's, we're all different. That is such a good point. It was like, I was like listening to a podcast, a mental health one, and they were talking about comparisons. And I was like, had my kid there. And I was like, looking around, I was like, Oh, wow, like that, dad is like, playing like softball with this kid and there's like he's like one or something no like not one but you know like a toddler and i was like here i am like listening to my podcast i'm like trying to be mindful i'm like playing with them and i was like comparing i was like okay i need to stop like it's like entirely different kid i don't even know like their story and it's like it's so natural for us to compare i think okay. there's so much that goes into it it's like such a like interesting topic like this development in the conditions and then the psychology and then the physical function. I love it. I don't even know why I'm not doing pediatrics. Maybe I should switch over it. (laughs) No, what's normal? You know, there is no normal. Exactly. There's no normal. If, you know, parents ask me all the time, what should I look for that signifies a normal development in my child? There is none. There's exactly just, you know, some kids take a little bit longer. How about the next age group? Teenagers. Uh, when I switched over to uh, you know pediatrics and now currently working uh, in a public school, my uh, this population I never thought was going to be the one that I'm the most passionate about. And here I am, you know, entering the OT world, talking about rehab and geriatrics and and sports injuries and all these movement and kinesio taping and, you know, all kinds of uh, somehow fitness and wellness related. This population has entirely stolen my heart. It is where I have shined uh, the most as a clinician in myself. So this, this population, I agree goes unnoticed, um, but it's a crucial time in someone's life. 
here's the transition from adolescence to now adulthood. And this is where we're learning independence. How are we taking care of ourselves? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for years, you know, these individuals are in a very controlled environment. Structure. Right? So they're coming, the structure, home, school, home, school. So uh, there is structure. Now it's, well, what happens now? What happens when they turn 18, 19 years old? So from the age, I believe from 13 to about at 18, you know, they're crucial for developing functional skills, IADLs, maximizing their potential in society. You know, they have so much to offer. It's a person living with a disability. It's not the disability. They are more than capable if they are given the tools, if they are given the strategies to be successful. They can work, they can learn, uh, they can take care of themselves and we need to stop handicapping them. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and I feel like the handicapping is really coming from a good place. It's, it's a protection, um, but they can be. And the emotional, cognitive, you know, the, the physical changes that occur and us as clinicians, this is where we shine and where we, you know, build our rapport and we give them the confidence and we help simplify their lives and enhance their, their, their lifestyle, right, for success and, and to be integrated amongst their peers so they don't feel different That's... because it can happen. Mm-hmm. That outside the norm thing again and like how it can really wear on someone's psychology. And, you know, we can also mention how the world has changed and the dynamics in in the world that we live in. And this just makes it a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. Um, And if they're given the accommodations, if they're provided the strategies, they can fit in, they can play sports. You know, this is is the age group where they become self-aware. And a lot of them recognize the differences a- amongst their peers. Yeah. So how do we as clinicians help them integrate, you know, and, and be part of, you know, as we're saying, the norm. Right. Or have them accept that their differences makes them just a little more special. Yeah, totally agree. Like, di- like yeah. a diagnosis, because that's kind of like a label and. I've heard some podcasts where some people, even like OTs, they found out like later in life that they may have like ADHD or something. And I think it goes both ways. Personally, it depends on how where you take it. But what do you have any experiences with kids maybe who have been like recently diagnosed working with them in OT? I know I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> no. Yes. Yes, I have. And um, I've known parents uh, that withhold that information. Um, hmm. And then in their teenage years, they do let them know where they, you know, these, these teen, they start to ask questions, you know, why am I like this? Why do I feel this way? Um, mm-hmm. And I have entered cases during that period of time. And I actually am working with um, someone now. And, you know, how we talk about, we have this personal um, approach to, to, to our interventions or, or relatability you know, and that's how I started my first session uh, with this one uh, client. Um, and I said to her, I said, hey, listen, I was like, Miss Erica, I said, she's kind of 
she's kind of quirky. You know, she sometimes has a hard time paying attention. And, you know, this is her strategy. This is what she does. And, you know, it's not weird. It's just you're different. You're different. Mm -hmm. And it's fine. It's can I help you feel a little more normal? Can I give you some, you know, little tips on, on, how, on how to control that feeling? And yeah. as soon as that, I'm like, Miss Erica, you do you get that? And I'm like, I get it. Um, <laughs> you were a teenager before. <laughs> I was a teenager before. And now children are being labeled, right? And it maybe when I was growing up, we really weren't. But those issues were there. They were present. Yeah. Uh, they, we just didn't pay much attention to them at that time. Yeah. Um, and what strategies did I use that were successful for me? And a lot of my interventions with these teenagers really come from my own personal experience or asking, you know, my peers, my colleagues, and I want their personal perspective on, you know, I say, hey, do you have, you know, issues with, um, you know, paying attention or I have, uh, you know, maybe some kind of like these obsessive compulsive tendencies, like yeah. I have to do this a certain way, or, you know, I can't, I can't focus. And, and how did you deal with those? Um, and I'm blessed enough to work in a school with the most amazing, amazing group of clinicians, uh, where they are very relatable, they're very open, and, and we're definitely a family. So I do, I'm fortunate uh, to be able to get that information. Um, yeah. But I can also add in is, you know, having just wrapped up my doctorate, you know, that evidence based uh, approach. And if if I'm not getting it from my peers, I'm looking, I'm looking at that research, I'm reading, uh, I'm, I'm constantly uh, trying to, to, to one up my intervention, to one up you know, my, the, the people around me to, to have my clients be the most successful. So <laughs> no, you're, you're giving, you're literally giving me goosebumps because it was like so vital and informed that we look and integrate all these into our, what's the term now? Evidence informed practice where you integrate your own personal experience, expertise, opinion, and as well as the research, but also like factor in, like you said, the parents and who we're actually directly working with and that is what builds the big picture of what intervention you should do. What you're doing is like really a good model for what OTs should be doing like in practice. Thank you. And I, you know, was going to say that uh, I know we have a lot of uh, new practitioners or maybe OT students that do listen to your podcasts and we're not supposed to know everything. As clinicians, I feel like we graduate, we pass our boards, and you instantly think that you're supposed you're never supposed to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. No, you are. You are supposed to say, I don't know. And our schooling and our programs and capstones teach us how to find the answers. And it is in that evidence-based research. It's it's reading, it's talking to our peers, talking to dis different disciplines. It helps us say, hey, I don't know. But my schooling taught me where where am I going to find these answers? Yeah, and 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 it allows us to be more comfortable. And I think it took me the first five years to really grasp that <laughs> and, and to to finally be okay with saying like, you know, I don't know, but but I'm going to look into that, or I'm going to find that answer. Yeah, it takes a you whole know, lot or, to admit that. Yeah, yeah, to admit that. 
So I, I do agree. Our programs and, and my doctorate program uh, definitely really solidified is where where do we find the answers? You know, because we're presented with different issues every single time, every new case, mm-hmm. sometimes an old case, you know, something changes in their life. Maybe the degree, the, the disease progresses and now you have to adapt a little bit more. Yeah. You know, there's a lot. There's a lot. We're always learning. And I think in OT, it's like such a cool way of learning too. Because like, we got to put that into our like toolbox that's in our head, of like how we can use it for like, not just working with clients, but like in our own personal lives. Once you learn about it, it's kind of like it opens up your world so much. Yes, yes both professionally and, and personally. I'm very humbled uh, by what we do and the people that we meet along the way. I'm curious to learn more about your role in your current roles in public school in like the team that you're working with do you have any stories that come to mind or what's it like a day in the life to it's like a loaded question (laughs) um from the close-up perspective my day-to-day my goal is to make the kids that i work with feel successful Mm -hmm. smile feel proud feel like they've achieved something because they're learning, they're trying to learn, subjects are difficult, but can I present them with a task or a goal or something that they wanna learn or achieve and help them be successful at that? Or give them just the time to step away from what's difficult for them and regulate their emotions, teaching them how to, you know, things come up from day to day. So my, I try to have the, the kids that I work with socialize, uh, work in groups, bring them into rooms where there's other other people, there's other students, and how do we talk? And you know, does what anything can occur? You know, is there feelings of anger because somebody pushed me, Erica? And you know, what do I do? It's like, okay, hey, let's talk about this. How are we going to deal with this? Uh, so my day to day and up close is making them walk away from me feeling successful. Yeah, And it doesn't matter what it is, but if, when they walk away with a smile and say, hey, I did that. I, yeah. And anything, anything. And my big picture is making them successful in the real world. This is, this is my biggest dream. This is my biggest goal. I have these dreams of starting vocational programs to allow them to earn a living and to socialize and be productive out in society and not be kept from the world. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. they they have so much to share and so much joy. And it's um as you can see in my face, I just light up when I talk about, you know, the setting that I work in and giving them that opportunity. Do you think there are not many of these opportunities. Like even ask me if I think just thinking about it, I was like, I don't even know. It's like, if I have a kiddo with condition, like, I don't know, autism, for example, it's like, what kind of supports would there be after the typical like high school? It's like such a big jump. And then like society, I feel like doesn't have the supports and then they may be stigmatized. And it's like, and it's a really new thing, I think for the public to really understand like we as OTs have like really like worked with this and we have provided supports, but like it's such a big challenge. And how would you go about it? Like if you had like all the resources in the world, like how would you go about achieving that kind of dream for this 
age group? I would do more life skills. Instead of teaching them how to read a novel or a passage and just read it, do they understand it? Let's, let's talk about can they read a menu? Can they read prices, how much something costs when they go shopping? Can they read directions on how to make, how to make pancakes? I don't know, yeah. you know, reading the back of, of oatmeal. Like how do we make oatmeal? How do we use a microwave? How do we, you know, technology? How do we use these things? Yeah. And I feel like our traditional, you know, education system kind of leaves out, you know, also those real world and real life experiences is, yes, can they read, but can they read the menu for mm-hmm. to, to order food? Exactly. And you like, know, do, it, they know, do they need money? Do you, do you know that this is a dollar? Uh, h- how many quarters make a dollar? So I do a lot of this interacting. How do yeah. we pay for something? How do we ask for something? How do we ask for help? The world that they see is so different. And it's not that it's a weakness or anything, but it's just different, like you're saying. And like all these practical skills that even like when we go to like OT school, I was like, okay, I'm gonna learn how to do this and like work with this population. I'm gonna have like this skill set, like in PT, you know, like manual therapy. But in OT, I feel like a lot of it is so left out in terms of the actual practical education. But that's also such a big strength, I think. I don't see that as like a shortcoming of like OT education that like you just recently did your OTD. Like you probably didn't learn about how to teach kids how to count change, right? But it's yeah. like, it's the foundation and the theory and the premise and the reason behind it is where we can, you, like we talk about how we are creative. Like you, you talked about like your fashion things. Like that's where I think OT allows us to look at it in such a different way because if... All OT programs, for example, like taught like the same thing and it's like one way of doing it. And it's like, we're not being holistic and looking at group differences and how we can make the individual shine, which is like (laughs) very heavy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think it's what you were saying where we always have to go back to our foundational skills. This is, you know, I've mentored a lot of new grads level two field work supervisor also. And that's the one thing is, you know, they always ask me, but how do you treat the individual? How do you make them shine? How do you, like, how do you know? And I always say boils down to one thing is, you know, where are your foundational skills? And you always have to go back. It's the theory and applying that. Yeah. And taking, looking for their strengths, someone's strengths, and then using that to your advantage. So maybe they can't do a, but they could do B. Yeah. So now we're going to say, and honest, I'm a very honest clinician with um, all the clients that I work with. And I try to explain to them, I don't, I try not to sugarcoat as much as I can um, and tell them, you know, my goal is really to make you shine. So yes, you want to do this and maybe we can't get there, but guess what? We could do this. Yeah. You know, and you're going to shine and you're going to be independent and you're going to totally rock that. And having them see the, that energy and, and knowing that, and own that, that if that makes, if that answers the question. Yeah. And I also, you know, didn't want to forget to add, um, you know, with this teenage population, you know, I talked about, you know, reading a menu and making change, but there's something that I forgot to mention that I think is the most crucial during this time is teaching them what to do with their leisure time. Mm. Oh my you know, gosh. Their friends. 
maybe are playing football. You know, can they play football? I don't know, but we're going to find something that you love. And, and how are you going to spend your time? It's something that brings you joy and it's exposure. I do a lot of exposure with these kids because whether they have been told that they can't, they have never been given that opportunity to try, you know, and, and I'm like, hey, have you ever played, I don't know, soccer? Have you ever played yeah. tennis? Uh, do you like to draw? Do you? Oh, I said, I, no. I'm like, you sure? Did you ever try? Like, you know, let's go do this. It's amazing how much there's a lack of exposure. Mm-hmm. And this is where I say funding some programs to give them exposure and educating parents. It's so important. And you can't necessarily blame a parent. Again, they just don't know. Yeah. You know, you don't expect this. And it's okay. It's okay. You know, yeah. your child can still have a enriched life. Totally. Be happy. Yeah. You know, live their, live their own lives, you know, and we need to expose them. Having these resources to expose them is like so important. Even if it's like very surface level, it opens up their mind to their potential and what they can do in like, it's limitless with like one's like confidence that they build with something as obscure as like, that they didn't even think about. Exposure. <laughs> yeah. It'd be cool if like, I don't know, like parents like are really into like supporting their kids, you know, it's like, there should be like, this, maybe there is like programs to expose these kids to these types of different things and then they go through it and like maybe there are like a lot of different options with like just like really low expectations of exposing them to I don't know something like like these days it's like coding or something it's like wow that's so cool like I wouldn't have even thought about that like kids are like learning that and then then that hones in on their skills that they didn't even know they had like being able to code or draw or like do things so differently with the same set of skills, but like packaged in a different way, like for life. Right. It's, you know, I have a, a client that I work with now who she just, she loved to draw, you know, and I said to myself, you know, in the world that we live in technology, like, hey, do you ever think of making this digital? And, you know, what do you think about developing video games and graphic arts and now it's like that's all she talks about her parents <laughs> bought her this ipad and and this app where she can integrate that and her love of drawing you know and i took something so simple of her drawing on a piece of paper and said hey did you ever think of this why don't why don't we give it a shot why don't you try it and her dad happened to you know be an it uh-huh. person um so it worked out well and, you know, I talked to him and I was like, you know, you think, what do you think if we get her into this and maybe try to find her a program that's simple enough for her to use? Well, she shows me her artwork and all these digital uh, comics and, and all kinds of things that she's creating. And guess what? She shines and she's confident and she doesn't feel so different because she owns that. Yeah. You know, and her identity and helping them find their own identity. Yeah. Wow, I love that story. How like everything was there that you connect, helped connect the pieces. Like the dad was in IT and the kid had interests, but they you kind of like connected the low tech to the high tech in terms of like the assistive technology. And then it's like, then she's like taken off. Like she's on her own. Like you discharge her from services. Like she found her skill set and her interest and her, and her passion. Because I say at the end of the day, um, 
as a clinician and us as occupational therapists, we are facilitators. We aren't necessarily the problem solvers, but we are the facilitator. And yeah. we encourage and we adapt and we throw out strategies out there. But it's the individual themselves, you know, that are are doing all the work. And mm -hmm. every time I get thanked for, you know, doing my job, like me, <laughs> I'm like, no, it's you. The yeah. hard part was you. I was just kind of throwing stuff out there. You know, you made it happen. Yeah. I just gave you an idea. You know, yeah. it helped you put the pieces together. That's, that's such a good way. Yeah. I think that especially <laughs> new clinicians and students, yeah, there may be all this pressure, which is understandable for them to like, be like this, like high level, like being perceived as like the expert or like the, you know, know everything or know how to solve a problem. And that can put so much pressure on the clinician. And maybe my hypothesis is like, what's like leading to like this burnout where it's like, and like this imposter syndrome and but it's okay like we're all just guiding the patient and we're all lifelong learners just that we're all at different kind of places and on our own journey you know and for a patient it can just be just a little bit of nudge away from you know something like misuse of leisure like going and turning to drugs or like mm -hmm. things that are like less productive and meaningful to them that you know, like drugs exactly like OT is about that you really need to do and you're helping someone engage in those meaningful occupations for that group. And it can be so simple too. New grads are listening to this. What do you think is some of the takeaways that they can kind of get and to help guide them in their process? The most success that I've gotten in my career so far is my compassion and my passion for what I do every day. Um, I've not forgotten my why and why I started my journey um, in occupational therapy. And healthcare has changed and the environment, the world and, and the dynamics within our profession has changed. But there's one thing that none of that can take from me. And it is my passion for helping people, for helping people be successful and, and making them shine. And as a new clinician, uh, the advice that I give is to always stay humble. Always stay humble. It doesn't matter how much experience you have, you still don't know everything. And someone younger than you might know, someone mm -hmm. with less experience might have something to share that's gonna help your patient or your client be successful. And just always, always, always stay humble and always stay true to what OT really is and why you did it. And there's going to be a lot of people around you that are going to try to change that. Mm -hmm. And you have to be confident in why you entered this profession. You don't just bump into OT. You know, maybe there are people out there who've always wanted to be an OT. But for me, I never knew what it was. And a lot of my peers also, they have some kind of a personal story to why they became an OT and hold that. You have to hold that close to your heart, no matter how much people are trying to change uh, how you practice and what you do. And I say this every single day to myself, and it's become a little bit of a joke uh, <laughs> amongst my coworkers. And they say, as soon as I walk out to go treat, and when I did all of my settings, it's just always what defines me. It's they say, there goes Erica, she's about to go save the world. Aww. And I say that's it. I wake up every day because I'm trying to save the world. 
That's such a and this is what I hold true since since I've I've I graduated OT school. And wow. nobody's gonna take it from me. It's yeah. not gonna change. I have clinicians that I've worked with, even old bosses, and you know, they somehow through you know social media or somehow find me and reconnect and they will say, Hey Eric, are you still trying to save the world? I said, you betcha. <laughs> I'm still trying and I'm going to keep trying to, to save the world. Yeah. So that is such a powerful <laughs> and like grounding, like ability and like, I wouldn't say coping, but like just a way to give you, it's just like so huge. I can't even put it into words, but it makes so much sense intuitively. And it's so easy to lose sight of that and get caught up in the weeds of like what, things are like in the real world, how things are going and lose sight of your own internal passion and motivation and reason, the why. That's a really good tip that I'm going to use. <laughs> I'm going to keep <laughs> keep close to my heart. That's awesome. It's time for our lightning questions. And I like to ask these to everybody because it's, I don't know, it's like, it kind of goes into why you chose OT too. So how would you describe OT to a stranger on the street that went up and like, hey, Erica, you're trying to save the world. What do you do exactly? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my true uh, definition about OT is about helping someone live their life to the fullest, regardless of what has changed in their life. So helping someone to adapt to that change and whether that means I'm changing, you know, uh, their environment to do something. So I said, I always say, think about what you do every day, getting dressed, going to the bathroom, eating, uh, working, um, playing sports or whatever makes you happy, what brings you joy in your life. My job is to help you to continue to do that each and every day. And whether I have to change something within your environment or the way that you do it, my goal is to make you successful at doing that. That's awesome. That's really well put. I think I totally agree with your, your, the way you describe it. It's just like it's so huge and it's such a important thing that our clients can benefit from. With that said, what's your personal favorite occupation? I know this is a tough one. Um, in most recent times, I will say rest, rest and sleep and self-care. Yeah. Um, a lot has changed in healthcare. A lot has changed, and I keep saying in the world, um, and as clinicians, we can't allow burnout. We need to take care of ourselves so that we can help not only take care of our clients and our patients, but our own families, you know, people that count on us. And there is always somebody that needs you, that needs your smile, that needs you to listen, that needs you to just, just your presence. But if you don't take care of yourself and you don't allow rest, then you're just going to burn out. Yeah. And this is from my own personal experience. You know, I was working two jobs, trying to get my doctorate, um, you know, writing my my dissertation and it was a lot. It was a lot. And I definitely took myself to the max. Mm -hmm. And I put myself not second, but like third and fourth. And I suffered from that. Uh, and and it, it's now become my goal to also support um, not only new grads, but also OT students, yeah. you know, and, and taking care of themselves because had someone given me some of these coping strategies, um, I think I would have been a little more successful. 
Yeah. Um, you know, I wouldn't have struggled. Let me say it this. I wouldn't have struggled. Um, you know, I still achieved my goal, but, may, I, but I wouldn't have struggled. My quality of life uh, would have been better during that period of time. Sometimes you just got to put use OT for yourself. <laughs> it's easy. Yes. I've been guilty of not remembering to do that and just. Is there something that you read recently? You talked about the research that you've been doing and then like sometimes when you dive into it, what's something interesting that you want like to share with our audience that you read about or learned about? So my go-to, uh, I say my, uh, my spiritual book, uh, which has supported my self-care and I've lent out to actually a lot of new clinicians. It's called The Four Agreements by uh, Miguel Ruiz. And I actually just recently lent it out uh, to a new OT grad. Um, and I always say that this is how you're going to live and this is how you practice by. So if you've never read it, go out there, get it. It's an easy read. Um, he has a lot of other books about, you know, relationships and uh, dealing with our own insecurities and, and how we need to look within ourselves and being clinicians, how are you going to make someone believe you if you don't believe in yourself? Yeah. It all starts with us. Um, and I think in, in my over 10 years of practice, this is more towards the tail end um, that I've really learned that, you know, it's it's not what can I memorize in a book? It it's, starts with me. Yeah. And it's just that simple. You just gotta yeah. maybe open up your your interview questions and what you said or reflect on that and the why and that's really all it takes and that kind of guides you everywhere else in terms of self-care and career and whatever it may be and how imposter syndrome burnout it's just like it's yes. that simple and so powerful too at the same time what would you say last question is the takeaway from today's episode if you can kind of summarize it it's like a, a lot of uh, not <laughs> nuggets in there and like good stuff. I would say that that focus on how do we take all that we learn um, in school and, you know, along the ways in our career and how do we take all of this information and put it into practice individually to the person that we're working with and how, as we always, as we've said a couple of times, is how do we make them shine? Mm -hmm. um, how do we use this plethora of, of information and hone in on one person and, and individualize our treatment and try to maximize our interview questions and take away what's important to them. And, uh, you know, we talked about a lot of different things, but I feel like the, the major theme is, you know, passion and individualization and, you know, our clients and our patients are human beings, relatability. Uh, it is yeah. really the key to success. Yeah. Relate, relate and be humble. And, and you know, we come out of school and, you know, the expectations are set so high. Maybe we set them high for ourselves. And I, and I do, you know, I'm known to be a perfectionist. But as time goes on and the more people we meet and the people that we work with, you know, I, I mentioned that they humble you. Yeah. They humble you and everybody that I work with whether it's a caregiver, whether it's the patient or the person themselves, I always take away some life lessons.